And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle. This is your host today, Matt Watson. Excited to be joined by Lorenzo Conti today. We're going to talk about something interesting, building robots that can swim through grain. So this should be a really fascinating conversation. Um, Lorenzo is the founder and CEO of a company called Crover. You can check him out at crover.tech. Before we get started, I do want to remind everybody that today's episode is brought to you by Fullscale, which is my company. We, we've helped over 100 other startups and scale-ups grow their development team from our team in the Philippines. If you need to grow your development team, QA, product management, UX, all these different things, front-end, back-end, mobile, check us out at fullscale.io. Lorenzo, welcome to the show, man. Thank you, Matt. Delighted to be here. Now, I don't know if I've ever had somebody on the podcast from Scotland. What's it like having a startup or, or a tech business in Scotland? Uh, it is a very exciting ecosystem. I would say it's got uh, you know most of the things that an entrepreneur can wish for. Uh, we possibly the exception of uh, you know large uh, um, investment capital. Uh, I think if we had that in Scotland, like uh, there is in the US, uh, then, uh, you know, the ecosystem would thrive a lot. Uh, there's just uh, a lot of challenges here for businesses to scale, uh, which is why we're, we're also kind of in the process of setting up our operations in the US. Uh, but other than that, uh, you know, it's a fantastic ecosystem and we can enjoy all the benefits of being uh, in, uh, you know, in Scotland with a beautiful landscape. So what makes it fantastic? Is there a lot of talent? Is there a lot of access to like early stage capital or grants or tax benefits? Like what 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 makes it great in Scotland? Uh, so there's a lot of support, um, especially in the early stages, you know, universities and other organizations here, um, especially in our case, you know, coming from the University of Edinburgh, we've received a lot of support from the start to get through the, the first steps. Uh, you know, you mentioned grants as well. There, there's definitely a lot of good, uh, uh, you know, grants. And being in Scotland also means that you have access to support both from the Scottish government and the UK government. Um, so it's kind of that, that nice duality where you've got, you know, multiple options available. Uh, as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm originally from Italy, but I've been in Scotland for the last uh, 14 years. Uh, so, you know, I very much like it here. I'm not an expert on European uh, accents. I would have never figured that out. <laughs> but um, so where did you originally come up with this idea? Like you originally started this right out of college, right? Where did you come up with the idea for this for this company? Uh, yeah, a little bit after college. I mean, I was doing my PhD at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, okay. I was, um, so... Yeah, I'd already done a kind of bachelor and master and a little bit of work experience uh, before that. Um, I was working in the field of uh, granular materials, uh, which is a bit of a funny word because a lot of people, you know, when they hear it, they're just like, you know, what is that? I've never heard of that. Uh, 
but they're actually the largest uh, family of traded commodities worldwide. Uh, it's uh, you know it's it's weird to think about it, but even more granular materials are traded annually than than fluids, and everyone knows what a fluid is, right? Uh, and granular materials is really any system made of solid discrete particles, uh, uh, like you know like sand, grains, uh, or powders. Sugar. And, uh, yeah, sugar. Yeah, that's a really good example as well. Um, I, I usually like to think about it as the grown-up version of uh, ball pits. You know, when you're a kid and you go to McDonald's. <laughs> and, you know, uh, they're, yeah. They're kind of, yeah. They're, they're a bit we like have that. Those, we have those corn pits here in Kansas City where you can go and there's like little family places and jungle gyms. There's like big things of corn. You can go and play in the corn and stuff. So Yeah, so I, as a grown-up, I just... You know, I had fun studying the physics of those systems as well, which which are actually a, a bit more complicated than you know one realizes. But and and I was working specifically on studying non-local effects in these types of systems. So when you have uh, something happening at a certain point in space in there that affects a different point into that system. Uh, so saying you know you're you're sitting in your in your in your corn pit and uh, you know. Um, it's able to support you on the top, but then something happens on the bottom of the, the bulk and you start sinking into it. That's a really good example of a non-local effect. Um, and I was lucky enough to, uh, you know, to discover that uh, there is a, a coupling, so a connection between rotational motion and translational motion in these types of system, uh, which really led to the development of the first feasible method for moving through these types of systems. Um, so we we kind of you know starting from that that physical discovery, we were able to develop the first device in the world able to move through sand, the grains or or powders uh, a lot more efficiently than the worm uh, in the movie Dune. <laughs> well, I'm excited to see Dune too when it comes out here in a couple of weeks. By the way, but so was your idea originally to build like a, a robot or something that would do this or how, how did like what was the original goal was that the goal from the very beginning um i mean at the very beginning there wasn't a specific goal i was just uh, you know doing research looking for um you know exciting new physics also to to complete my phd <laughs> that's you know a, a, never a fun process when uh, when you're getting towards the end of it and uh and then, uh, you know, I realized that since there wasn't anything like it before and there had been a lot of attempts to get objects to move through these types of systems that had been unsuccessful, um, okay. you know, I realized that there was a lot of potential. And uh, initially, I started thinking about applying it into in space. Um, you know, like NASA and other organizations, they send rovers into Mars and other right. places. And they usually have to avoid, uh, you know, sand dunes or regolith dunes uh, because they're really tricky environments to move into. Uh, also, they, you know, they build really bulky and heavy structures to, you know, go into uh, the surface of those things, which uh, which is very expensive because the heavier the payload, the, the, the higher the cost. Um, and, and also from a physics point of view, I thought, okay, you know, like, there's no organic matter as far as we know in, in these places. Uh, you know, there, there's little to, to no water or moisture. So it's even closer to the, you know, pure, 
physical system and so it should be easier to move through them uh, but obviously from a commercial point of view that's kind of a you know longer term target and it yeah. doesn't have as much impact so so then you know i started thinking about things more on earth that would have a, a bigger short to medium term impact so if if you have now built this technology and you can use it with grain or sugar or sand corn all these different things what what is the value to them what what why would they want to use this uh, there's a lot of angles to it i mean obviously uh, one is helping maintain the quality of grain stocks uh, you know grain gets harvested it goes into storage or in transportation in a lot of situations it stays static in sheds or silos for long periods of time uh, you know it could be days weeks uh, sometimes even years right you know we we sometimes see places where they they keep stocks for two years or longer obviously those, those are the less frequent cases uh most situations is kept for a few months and during that period uh, there's currently no way to properly assess what the quality of the stock is and help maintain it other than you know static sensors and taking like very dangerous walks on those bulks uh, so the the most common way of kind of managing these bulks is still having a person to physically walk on top of them with a hand spear um on you know run the risk of sinking uh in through what people call uh, grain entrapment which is a, a really bad uh, way to go um, and, and that brings in like the health and safety aspect as well. You know, we're hearing from more and more companies that want to improve the health and safety of their operations or that currently have no option at all to manage the bulks because they, they have no fit on the bulk policies. Um, and so, you know, th- those are kind of the, the two main angles that we started with, uh, you know, monitoring the grain and helping maintain its quality and improving the health and safety of, of operations. But as we went through the process of, you know, gathering more user feedback and working with more organizations, we are just, uh, you know, we've been discovering a lot of other reasons why people want our system. Um, and, you know, other key reasons is also, you know, reducing the cost of uh, cooling and aeration, uh, which is the, the main way in which people can control the conditions of grain bulks. Uh, and currently is done in a very inefficient manner, whereby people just activate uh, aeration funds during the warm months, uh, you know, at night uh, constantly, and uh, especially with the current like energy costs, that is, uh, you know, that is often the largest cost of running these these grain stores, uh, and so we well, we can reduce that and make it more efficient. Well, it sounds like you could almost create a new industry here, where when somebody goes to buy grain or one of these kinds of products, they almost. Uh, expected to be inspected before they would buy it and they would use like your product to inspect the grain before they would buy it yeah 100 percent. and i mean initially we we had all these ideas to you know entirely revolutionize the the grain industry uh but one challenge with kind of changing significantly the way people do things is that it takes time and, and a lot of yeah. money and so we, you know, we, we changed our plans towards kind of more iterative improvements. So right now we're just kind of, we've aligned ourselves to the way people do things and we make it better. But, you know, hopefully in the long term, we can also help redesign the, the, insist, the entire system from the core. So how big is this device? 
So we've got the kind of main part of the robot that that goes into the bulk, which is quite small. Uh, we've got different corporations of it, but the largest one is eight centimeters in diameter. Um, and then we've got what we call the mothership of the system, which carries the heavy payloads, uh, moves on the surface, you know, can climb like steep bulks, uh, and um, and we can fit like different modules into it. And that's a bit larger, uh, but um, you know, about uh, six centimeters is the is the. Okay, we don't. We don't have centimeters in the United States. How big is that? <laughs> I know. I was thinking that as I was saying it. Um, like in, three inches. <laughs> that's uh, yeah. That's about twenty inches. <laughs> the big one's about twenty inches. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but you said the smaller one was only about eight centimeters. Is that what you said? Yeah. So that's about three inches. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm just joking with you. Um, no, I know. I need to so, learn my inches. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, you know, at full scale, we have a lot of employees in the Philippines and what's, I've been over there 14 times. And what's interesting there is they like half use the metric system and then half use the, I guess they call that the imperial system or whatever. Um, so like, you know, some things like if you have a baby, they weigh it in pounds for whatever reason, but for an adult, they weigh them in kilograms. I don't understand why. And the, but the temperature is in Celsius, like, but other things are in kilometers, like is it's totally all over the place, but um, anyways, I always have fun with that. But so, have um, so what are the what are the key like types of sensors you had to put on this thing? Like, I'm just fascinated about like what does this thing do? Is it looking for? Are you looking for like insects? Are you looking for humidity? Are you looking for like other toxins? Like, what can you find with this thing? I'm just really fascinated by this. So we started with temperature and moisture because those are the main okay. parameters of grain quality and also like the classic methods um, of what people call integrated pest management. Okay. They are based on uh, keeping an eye on the temperature and the moisture of the stock and making sure that those two parameters stay within a safe range that prevents the growth of uh, pests like insects and molds, right? You know, those okay. are biological entities like every grain comes from the field uh, with some amount of uh, spores or eggs. Uh, so it's mostly about making sure that those things, they, they cannot grow, <laughs> right? It's about creating an environment that is, is not good for them to live in. Um, and then obviously, you know, in reality, things are a bit more, more complex than that. Uh, so we're in the process of implementing uh, carbon dioxide readings as well, uh, which is kind of more in line with more modern models that interpolate you know carbon dioxide with temperature and moisture um, and we've uh, been uh, since some time like doing a bit of work uh, on trying to develop more advanced sensing as well for other parameters like mycotoxins and protein um, the challenge there though is that when we go beyond temperature moisture and and carbon dioxide there isn't really like a suitable um small sensor that fits all the yeah. requirements for using the stock that, that really can measure these things. So we're having to design other things from scratch. But already with the three main parameters that I mentioned, there's a lot of things that can be predicted in terms of mold growth and maintaining the grain quality. So all I can think of is you guys are working on this, you got your prototype, you're so excited to test it. 
And worst case scenario has to be you put this in the grain and the damn thing gets lost in there. <laughs> and it gets stuck in the grain. Did you guys ever have that problem? Yeah, I don't know if you had a, ever had a grain store yourself, but that, that's literally like the first question we, we get kind of 90% of the time from uh, from grain storage operators, <laughs> or at least used to. Um, and, and that was because we started with our remote version of the device. Uh, so, you know, battery powered, uh, we, we know yeah, cables. Yeah. And so obviously, you know, if it failed, uh, it was lost in there. And, and that is a contamination problem, effectively. You know, if you yeah. go and sell your grain and someone <laughs> finds like a blue device in there, that, that's, you know, they're not going to be very happy. Um, and so we uh, we moved primarily to, to a tethered version. Like we... we so it's we're, tethered. We're still, yeah. Uh, so that even if it malfunctions, it can be, it can be retrieved. Uh, um, and also, you know, for, for a few other kind of safety considerations as yeah. well. So you mentioned earlier about maybe setting up an office in the U.S. Please tell me you're coming to Kansas City. Where is like Grain Central? Where 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 do you plan to come? So we are slowly making our way towards Kansas City on the Midwest. Um, for now, we're setting up an office in uh, in upstate New York in uh, Rochester. Uh, okay. Because we, we got a bit of support there through an organization called uh, Grow New York, as well as Cornell University. And uh, and also, you know, it's somewhat one of the closest places to the UK in terms of time zones and other things. Uh, but, um, you know, the, the plan is to, to kind of keep expanding towards the West. Yeah. Well, definitely want to get to the Midwest here. There's there's a whole lot of uh, a lot of farming and stuff around here. So what did it take technology-wise to build this? Like, you know, when th people think of tech, they think of like, oh, I'm going to build this web application and what kind of front-end development, you know, framework do I need and what does my tech stack look like? And like, uh, that, this is totally different. How do you build the technology for this? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of parts involved. Uh, um, I think possibly the biggest challenge has been the fact that there wasn't any device out there that, uh, that looked or worked or, or moved like our device does. And um, and so we had to basically write the guidebook ourselves, um, fail a lot of times, you know, like um, iterate more than, than usually required through, through the various designs because uh, it's really hard to predict how things are going to behave in, uh, in grain or, or in any type of granular system. Uh, so, you know, a lot of things until you actually build them and test them, you don't really know what's going to happen in there. Uh, and you, you can simulate them as much as you, you want. I mean, there's what people call uh, called discrete element modeling for simulating granular systems, which was a core part of my PhD as well. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't matter how much computational power or other things you've got, like those models are not perfect. And uh, yeah, so we had to put together a team of engineers covering various areas uh, from, you know, mechanical engineering to electronics to obviously, you know, robotics and automation and, uh, yeah, really figure a lot of things ourselves uh, from, you know, the way the device moves in practice uh, in, uh, in grain, you know, just starting from the physical concept and turning it into like a practical design uh, 
to yeah the automation side of things uh, even from the electronic side because the requirements of the system like ended up being very different from other things like you know drones and so on for which a lot of you know subsistence and components are usually designed for uh, we had to spend a lot of time either designing things ourselves from scratch or you know doing a lot of communications with supplier to to get them to build kind of customized versions of of their well, it's, it had to be like airtight almost too if you're going to keep sand and sugar out of it and stuff yeah 100% i mean ip rating was was essential for all the parts which obviously like restricts the options that you've got right you might find a part that has amazing specs uh, you know great price and everything but then maybe like an ip rated version doesn't exist and you've got a you know, encapsulate the whole thing, and then it becomes like really bulky and, and heavy as well. Uh, so, you know, especially lately, we've been having to spend a lot of time like reducing the the weight of the old system because when you start making everything, like you said, uh, you know, IP rated and intrinsically safe, uh, it gets it gets heavy, it gets bulky. Uh, yeah. Making things also safe to like be in contact with grain, right? You know, like a lot of plastics are not, and so you you end up using a lot of metals into the system, and uh, yeah. So does so when you guys, I, I'm just fascinated by this. So when you guys put this in the grain, do you like drive it around kind of like it's a drone, or is it more like a, a Roomba or something for a vacuum cleaner where <laughs> you just put it in there and then it just starts running around and it kind of maps out everything up and down? Like like how does that work? So um, driving it around with a with a joystick, uh, where you've got like a camera feed as well, is oh, okay. present. But then it operating autonomously, like a Roomba, like you said, that that's really the target. Um, okay. So full automation of the system is is uh, one of the key focuses for us right now. We've managed to automate part of the operation, uh, uh, but there, there's still quite a bit of work required and that's another thing where like um you know that there's a lot of um like automation packages available out there and you know routines that by now have been very established for you know things like stabilizing and, and automating like you know the movement of drones uh, but things in grain they move very differently there's a lot oh, of like yeah. fluctuations you know like and and uh, there isn't really like, I mean, there's hardly any study out there of how to move something like our system in this type of environments. And so we, we that, that's really, you know, one of those big things that we've had to figure out ourselves and, and we're still improving. I think it's one of those things that, you know, we're just uh, in the early stages of that technology still in some way. And, uh, the, you know, it's probably going to be, you know, amazingly amazing and super stable in a few years, but um, so so are you still kind of manufacturing these kind of by hand one by one, and you know, like you're almost using like an Arduino or whatever, and kind of putting the pieces together in in this thing, or have you got to the point now where you have like figured out all the specs and you had to go to like China or somewhere and have them manufacture them for you? Like, tell tell us about how you manufacture this thing yeah we we've got some tight requirements um for for the for the certification of the system that mean that um you know we we couldn't use uh, some kind of 
obvious type of parts, you know, like like our like Arduinos, like you mentioned. And so we we had to, um, yeah, we had to source either suppliers that were specialized in, in you know in parts that met all our requirements and had the right compliance, or or design them ourselves and and get them, you know, tested and and so on. Um, so in terms of the manufacturing, we because there's so many parts of the system that have to come together, we've got suppliers for kind of some specific components that are off the shelves, and then we've got others that we we effectively subcontract the manufacturing of. Um, okay. I guess you know one of the big pieces that we're working on for um, for for our activities in the US is also trying to set up some manufacturing for okay. for North America. Um, in there and that's one of the main things that we're planning to do in uh, in upstate new york so how, how many parts are in this thing uh it's quite a bit you know i i can't remember the number but we, we've got a variety of uh bills of materials for for the various subsystems uh, one uh, one positive change that we've been making uh over the last months is moving the system more towards like a, a modular approach where we've okay. got, you know, like the main platform. Different sensors. and Yeah, exactly. We can fit different things onto it, especially since we've had a lot of requests for like a sampling module where we can collect physical samples from uh, the bulk. Yeah. Um, and that, that's possibly been even more requested than the kind of sensing piece. And, uh, you know, that that's kind of close to, to being ready now. And so we, we're hoping to start commercializing that one soon as well. Yeah, that that sure beats was the old way. They'd stand on top with a stick with like a giant spoon on the bottom or something, and try and fish out some some of the material from the bottom. Like, how did they do that before? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so yeah, just being able to go down and have it like okay, go down so many meters and collect a sample like that would be probably super valuable to them. Yeah, and I mean in the end. Uh... Like we really see the the Crover robot as a as a platform to enable different technologies to reach parts of the boat that they couldn't otherwise. Like we don't want to develop every single sensor that could potentially be fit into it for every possible application. Because right. obviously there's also things beyond grain, you know, there's like the mineral industry, like chemical powders, pharmaceuticals, you know, you name it. Um we you know, we don't possibly have the time to to work on every niche application. And so, you know, eventually we also see the possibility of like providing the robo as a, you know, like the basic kind of platform so that other people can fit their own sensors onto it and tailor it to their own application. I mean, you never know what people could use it for, right? Like, I guess there's somebody somewhere that has a, giant thing of marijuana and cannabis or something right and they're like hey i would use this for my stockpile of cannabis who knows like you know who knows what in the world people would use this for yeah i mean as long as they're not harming other people i, I think you know, that's fine. yeah you just never know there could be all kinds of different uses for for the technology right so what um I'm I'm really curious so you built the technology and no doubt it was really difficult to perfect how to build this all the engineering like you said robotics mechanical engineer software developers all these different components we could probably talk all day about how difficult that really was to pull together there's so many headaches in building hardware but I'm curious what is what was it like for selling this like once you've you've got a prototype you built the product 
how, how has it been, you know, with your go to market strategy, like, okay, how do we sell this thing and who do we sell it to? Um, I mean, on one side, we've been very fortunate because we, we've gotten a lot of interest, uh, from, from very early on. And, you know, the, we, you know, as soon as we, we put out the website out or people would hear through kind of word of mouth about what we were working on, uh, we, we just regularly been getting like inbound inquiries. And so we, we've hardly been doing like, you know, like active outreach other than in situations where, you know, say we were going to a new area, we were maybe spending like, a, you know, a few days there. And, and so we wanted to kind of maximize the use of that time and meet as many people as possible in that place. But otherwise, we've just been kind of fueled by, by inbound inquiries, really. And, uh, you know, the, the usual feedback that, that we get is, you know, how soon can we have one of these, right? Um, so it's been a positive situation, but at the same time, we've had to manage expectations because as a, you know, young early stage company with like limited capabilities, we couldn't really work with absolutely everyone, uh, especially since like, you know, like some of the inquiries were also from other parts of the world. And, you know, like we said, initially yeah. we are based in Edinburgh and Scotland. So we, we've been working with a, with a few selected partners in, um, you know, the UK and, and in Italy, we've been lucky enough to be able to kind of pick the ones that were more suitable for, you know, that kind of early stage iterative process of, uh, you know, continuous improving the product. Um, and yeah, we've been working with some amazing partners that enabled us to, you know, get to the point that we're, we're at today. Uh, but I think the key thing is obviously, you know, just working with, uh, with the end users as much as you can and, uh, and getting their feedback and making sure that, you know, you're not building what you think should be built, but more what they want. Yeah. So would, would this in theory work for rice? It can work for rice. We've done some work with rice in the north of Italy. Uh, unfortunately, there's no rice grown in the UK. Um, I was going to say you need to go to the, you need to go to Southeast Asia with this thing as fast as possible for rice. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, for for now we we're yeah we, we don't want to kind of stretch ourselves to thin. Yeah, but you're right. Yeah. So I guess what I'm trying to I'm thinking about in my head is like, who do you sell this to? Are you selling this to some kind of uh, commodities exchange or like, do you go and partner with like local, local, like agriculture, or like co-ops, or are you going to each individual farm? Like I'm trying to, I'm thinking in my head, like, who do you sell this to? Like at what layer of the system? Um, yeah, I mean, it could be used by any of those, uh, but primarily we focus on uh, um, centralized storage operators. Okay. So the likes of grain merchants, cooperatives, and port operators primarily. Yeah. Um, and I think that's also due to the way the market, like the grain storage market, is fragmented in the UK and Europe, where like farms here tend to be relatively small compared to like, you know, US farms. But then, you know, when you look at Kansas and, and other places in the Midwest, that's obviously a different story. Uh, so I think, you know, our, for our U.S. activities, we're probably going to be working even more with farmers. Um, and I mean, we've been working with farmers here in the U.K., you know, but they're not really our main marketing right. target, really, just because here they 
store small quantities they're more kind of price sensitive and and also they they tend to try to get grain out of the store as as soon as they can yeah they don't have the, yeah yeah they they want to send it on to the next stop as fast as possible so how long did it take you to build this from kind of idea phase to having like a working sort of prototype yeah it um you know it's one of those things that takes much longer than than you realize i think so i uh just a weekend right yeah it just takes like a weekend (laughs) yeah i I mean initially you know i also thought i'm gonna build it all on my own and um yeah obviously that wasn't possible so you know we had to build a team and building a team requires funding and uh you know, when you're a first-time solo founder, it takes time to just convince people that they should give you substantial amounts of money uh, to make that possible as well. And uh, so if I'm not mistaken, like, you know, the original kind of physical concept I observed in 2016, I was still doing the PhD then, so it took a bit of time to, you know, get all of that processed. Um, started the business around 2018, but it was still just me, and it was mostly to kind of work through kind of some of the patent filings and you know start applying for grants and things like that. And so like things really kind of kicked off around uh, like 2020, 2021. That's when we we really kind of started getting uh, some full time people on the team, and uh, yeah, so. Yeah, it's quite a substantial amount of time. Uh, you know, initially I thought this is going to take a few years and then I'm going to, you know, be a millionaire. But, uh, you know, it just <laughs> it takes longer than that, right? Uh, and I think we, you know, we still have uh, a way to go uh, before we reach all our targets. Uh, but it's getting really exciting now uh, because a lot of the things that we plan for for years are, you know, now so when, happening. So then when did you get your first paying customer? Um, that was probably 2022 okay. um, and uh, yeah we, we also didn't want to kind of just make too much commitments early on just because we knew that the technology wasn't you know super mature and super ready right and so we just worked kind of on a project basis with primarily kind of you know six partners um, that provided us a variety of you know uh, types of storage, geography, type of crops, and so on, so that it gave us like a benchmark to be able to build something and, uh, you know, iteratively get feedback, uh, you know, kind of practical feedback that would then be applied to the largest kind of market segment as possible. Well, I think this has been a really, really cool story, and I could definitely see you know, you talked about filing a patent. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that process? Because I know there's a lot of people always think they want to go file a patent, especially for just basic software products too. But this sounds like something that genuinely should have a patent, maybe multiple patents, because it's very unique. It's a physical device and, and all the problems it solves is, is very unique. So tell us about that. And I'm specifically interested in how you deal with having a worldwide patent. Uh, yeah, this could be a very long conversation. I think, okay, patents are... Yeah, that's are the very, short version. <laughs> yeah, no, they're a very interesting topic. And I, I really enjoy, you know, like talking with, with our patent attorneys. I think I learn new things all the time. 
I've grown like very uh, skeptical of patents over time just because they're, they're very expensive. And I think the return of investment in the end on them is very limited. You know, like their primary purpose in the end is mostly to, you know, just scare people off. And even if you have like really broad scope of protection, like in our case, you know, like, so we've got now three patent families. And the first one of those, we've already got patents granted in, uh, you know, in the UK, in the US, uh, uh, in uh, in China, in India. And, you know, we, we've got a few more patents around. And when you're talking about like an international patent protection, there's no real such thing, right? You know, you, you file what is called a PCT, but then you've got to select after 30 months, which specific territories you're going to want to seek protection on. And the more you pick, the more expensive it is. Yeah. So you've got to make sure that, you know, those are actually markets that you want to sell or manufacture into. And uh, yeah, and the process just kind of keeps on getting more expensive over time, right? Um, so I think just the old way the system works, it, it doesn't really favor the inventor. If anything, you know, in the end, you end up incurring more costs than you, than you get out of it. But, uh, but you know, obviously, if you've got a, a big idea and, and a big business to build, it's almost like a necessary thing that you got to do, right? Um, but yeah, it favors the lawyers who get paid to do all this. A hundred percent. Yeah, <laughs> I think there's like some inverse relation between like uh, GDP growth of uh, you know a lot of countries and the number of lawyers in that country, and I think you know, this <laughs> is a really good example of that. Well, I've I really appreciated having you on the show today, and I do want to remind everybody: if you have a startup, maybe as cool as Lorenzo's that needs software developers, or if it's just your traditional web application, mobile app, normal normal kind of tech you think of. Um, you can check us out at fullscale.io. We have over 300 developers working for companies all over the world, actually, building all sorts of cool stuff. So check us out at fullscale.io. Um, well, Lorenzo, um, everybody, this was Lorenzo Conti. He's the founder and CEO of Crover. That's crover.tech. We'll have a, a link in the show notes. Uh, very, very cool technology. Very, very cool story. Um, I especially was, you know, wanted you to have on, have you on the show because it's just such a fascinating, different kind of technology and different kind of business than a lot of the people we have on the show. And um, it, it that definitely was the case. It was very, very cool stuff. And it, it's amazing all the things that people are building out there, right? Like a lot of us are building like little tech products that are like line of business, you know, add something to database, reporting, you know, whatever kind of technology. And you're building robots just basically swim through grain. So this is really cool. Um, I'm curious if you have any final thoughts or word of words of wisdom as we end the show here today for other entrepreneurs. Uh, yeah, I think just, uh, you know, make sure that you're committed to what you want to build uh, for the long term, because it's, uh, you know, like we were saying, it's going to take some time. But if it's something that you really care about uh, and, uh, you know, you're, you're ready for to make it really, you know, your, your primary going in life for at least the next five to 10 years, then definitely go for it. Yeah. It, it sounds like it took you five, six, you know, years from original idea and, and, you know, PhD research and all that to having a, a working product. So you're an overnight success, Lorenzo. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, you Mario. It was a pleasure to be here. All right. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Mm-hmm. 
Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time. We do it.